Hi, I'm Jill Fritz with the Humane Society of the United States, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. On the next episode of Voices for the Animals, we'll look into the case of a goat, a girl, and the rise of more compassionate and humane alternatives to 4-H agricultural programs. We'll be speaking with Danielle Hanush, Executive Director of LEAP, Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and the Planet. It's a program that offers students the farm animal care experience and opportunities of 4-H without the selling of those animals for slaughter, which can traumatize many kids. These kids were, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old and just realizing, like someone flipped a switch, that, oh my gosh, these animals are no different than my dogs and cats at home. And now I'm knee-deep in this program and I don't think that there's another option and I have to betray my friend who I have cared for. We've got your goat. on the next Voices for the Animals, Friday, November 24th at 10 a.m., right here on 90.7 KBOO-FM. Welcome to the Talking Earth for 11-20-23, or whenever you happen to be listening. I'm Dan Raphael. I'm happy to be beginning my third year as part of the Talking Earth Collective, Uh, either the second or the first oldest continually running poetry radio show in America, if not the world. Uh, We have another fine trio of local writers today, tonight, this afternoon for you. Uh, Crystal Willer, Catherine Salzman, and David Hedges. We'll also have poems by Richard Loringer, Philip Whalen, and maybe somebody else. Hey, I want to start off to give a a chorus of huzzas to Leanne Grable for the amazing job she did putting together and the people who helped her, the November 5th tribute to Talking Earth co-founder Walt Curtis, bringing the tribes together. The, the place was packed and jumping with energy and love. Hey, and we want that love to continue. But, and so uh, we'll get the poetry rolling with Crystal Willer. Crystal Willer's poems have appeared in the Spoon River Poetry Review, Territory, West Branch Wired, the Columbia Poetry Review, and elsewhere. She has an MFA from Washington University in St. Louis and an MLIS from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She currently lives in Portland with her husband and daughter and works as an archivist at Lewis and Clark College. So here's Crystal. Okay, thank you. The arsonist speaks of her beginnings. Before, there was no field beyond here. The copper jar didn't fall so much as curl away. The kitchen remained fixed. The blue of the counter and the blue of the smoke was the same mud gray. The china that cracked and popped would have broken in the hollowed sink, the sink itself a kind of china. Before, on the dresser in the bedroom, a line of glass jars each air and a spider. Each spider was large, unmistakable. The numbers made them all the more present. Every night and every morning, a choir waiting, my mother the conductor. Even before the fire, the house looked gutted. The thing of value, the piano, didn't fit, calling out for so much care, effort. Shelves were already matches, kindling blankets. I came back to my home a pilgrim, wanting, until I was all emptied valley, shallowed basin. Um, This one is diptych in black and white. 
This one's mostly made of shadow. In the foreground is the door. The doorknob is a clean black cutout in the white wood, shine reflecting on the roundest part, like a cartoon. There's the vertical border of the door, and on the left, the side black with shadow, a small rectangle of white. And inside that, my mother. Her head is turned back into the camera. Her hair is cut just above the shoulder, pulled into a half ponytail. Flecks of white are her eyes and mouth opening, which make her look a little demonic, laughter in a featureless face. It's easy to say it mocks me, the door is bad metaphor, the imp mother and her twisted look from the white shape saying, so little left, so little right. This one's divided evenly in two. On the right is a door painted white with a black metal knob and lock. On the left is a wall with a framed drawing, a hatted woman's face, and some curved shape on her right that's like a boot but isn't. Below that, my mother. She looks straight at the camera, doesn't smile. Her hair is dark, although I know it wasn't. She's wearing a black sweater and a heart necklace that's whiter than the whites of her eyes. I never saw the necklace among her belongings, but I don't think I would have worn it. There's a shadow under her right eye, like a bruise, or like her cheekbone is too high on that one side. I look right in her eyes. I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, this one's called, Don't Worry, We Tell Her Daughter. She's returned. We can all see her. She studies asymmetries, colors with fine French pencils. Friends call and murmur through the scratched air. The night is blanketed. The day is bordered with light and dust. And the smell from the street is rotting. We describe her suffering as elegant, like the way birds stand in the cold and we say, they must be so cold. We, can't, we think we sh she can't deteriorate any further. We think she's freed herself of more than what she wanted freedom from. The diameters she measures become larger. The sea becomes her doorway to the sun. Her skin is unfamiliar and turning. She dresses in satin, her edges are scalloped. She's returned and we're all so happy to see her. The sky has nothing in it and is constantly moving. Okay, that's the end of the poems about my mother. Um, I'm going to read just a few, I guess, love poems or disappointment poems. Um, Motor Lodge Postcard. There's no access to the pool. I couldn't try to sink between the plastic straps of the lounge chairs if I wanted to. When I drive my Corolla around in the dust, I don't sing along to the radio, and I don't think to tell you about any of the lyrics. The slide tipping into the pool seems turned too far to the left, making me imagine someone catching a corner of themselves on the cement edge, rubbing themselves raw going in. From above, the two mismatched umbrellas look like lollipops, single flavors striped with white, licorice, cherry. You never made me feel bad about my body, but I felt bad about it anyway. Someone in a riding lawnmower must have carefully circled outward from the pool's paved border to get the grain of the grass looking this way.
Um, this is a small poem called A Small Example. I once wrote in a letter to you, I've stopped thinking the snow's beautiful. You replied that it would have been better had I written, I've stopped thinking. The snow is beautiful. Um, two weeks at the Hotel Baudelaire. It's a lower skill, but I'm looking brash, fortunate. Checks arrive, hotel robes, overtures. I'm a defense of dim spaces. Every night I command a great crowd, open victims offering up loose secrets. I don't lose my wrecked trembling, my sweet everything, more errant than ravaged. I fill up on audacity between glasses of white. A meager elevation of leopard print, perfect on whomever, fingered with love. Semblance is enough. I re-enter the party, eat custard from a pattern dish, mispronounce names. I won't say it, but no heroics. I repair myself regardless of apparatus or invitation. Two of every kind. She was even more sure when he likened the clouds to mechanical birds. I'm tamer around you, he told her once. She knew she would no longer want sex, would no longer want the mechanism of her body to scrape against his. Near the beginning, they had gone to the zoo, had sat on a bench in the birdhouse. Loud clicks and whistles came from behind. He read her signs told her it was the Papon hornbill, the mot-mot. She knew the loudest calls came from the mouths of children, insatiably hopping and circling. She was silent then. She was sure. Um, but of course, six months now, you've been silent. A hurricane is nearing, and I've found another which sounds like I've added to a collection of vintage handbags. Of course, what it means is that I think of you less now, almost not at all. I grind my teeth at night, my jaw aches, a few cavities hurt, one I can even press my fingernail into for added worry. I'm trying to do the same thing over, but better. I'm trying to make myself smaller, my voice lower. There are other things I'm trying, but isn't it enough that I'm still thinking? Last night, I dreamt we were slow dancing, and your tongue reached out through a slit in your throat to kiss me. Okay, um, I'll just read one last poem, um, but it's a long poem. It's a, I wrote it for a journal called Territory, where you every poem is paired with a map, and the theme was extremes, so I used a map of um, the North American locusts, which are now extinct and um, had read a lot about the, the decline of insects in the world. Um, so shifting baseline syndrome. My child, what fields opened for us? What prayers were tried? What didn't we have? What shapes they made counting us, collecting signs? What wasn't tried? Flame, metal, oil-slicked alluvium. What couldn't we crawl through? What soft couldn't we reach? Hollows, valleys, hand-dug ditches. What abundance. 
The air already paths of us before us, winged in all directions, the soil horizon gleaming, kerosene, wooden rollers, coal tar, before us nothing permanent, us turned unborn, us counting. Us, <clears throat> us counting clouds of us against us, prayers for diminishment. We were us in abundance, sounds of fire, perfume of earth turning to air, visible yellow-brown, us counted until countless, buried in stalks, in folds, in dirt, in slick. They gathered us dead boxes of earth, moving without thinking, us anxious, us always found in greater or less abundance, compare size, compare speed, compare us to weather, compare us to God, our acreage aired paths subpermanent. Thought us scale temporary, thought us just signs, obsessive, paper details, ethanol, types of wasps, my child jars us, nets us, starving rollers, bee eaters, little owls, a process pressed dead, years after new collection, archival, the word diminished like poetic, like prayer, like permanent. Prayers for us, subtle blindness, each generation in photos, our smiles stay the same size. The world never feels, we grow fallen, accustomed. Details we know, spiders, ticks we feel. Most of us can't name, we think we do know God. So much abundance, soil, waiting years. Us lamented, information clouds us, cleans us. We think us fine, only diminished. Subtle blindness as each generation increases. In the photos, the fishermen's smiles stay the same size. The world never feels it. We grow less, fallen and accustomed. We know the spiders and ticks buried. Sometimes we feel what most of us can't name. We think we do know well. The soil covering us, square and deep. Our God must have had prayers, still, our past dwindles. Us subjects, us abundant specimens, us waiting, decades, us lamented, solid information, absent something we think we've named, us waiting, diminished, we see we still have nets, signs temporary, starving rollers, bee-eaters, little owls. Justifications. Inheritance, age, cancer, debt, Extreme weather, dementia, old growth forests, neuroses, water, emotional instability, plastics, ultraviolet light, illness anxiety disorder, algae blooms, general weakness, cell phones, snow melt, clinical depression, soil erosion, privacy, little owls, grief, bee eaters, loneliness, time, conditional love, time, loneliness, bee eaters, grief, Little owls, privacy, soil erosion, clinical depression, snow melt, cell phones, general weakness, algae blooms, illness anxiety disorder, ultraviolet light, plastics, emotional instability, water, neuroses, old growth forests, dementia, extreme weather, debt, cancer, age, inheritance. Things taken as signs and things ignored. Clouds, stiffness in my thumbs in the morning, swollen joints, 
dreams in which you appear in various sizes. My child, clicks of my jaw, mood swings, little cruelties, varicose veins, houseplants in recovery, dreams in which I rock you in a warm house with a wood stove and a pot-bellied pig, hypochondria, little owls, yellow light I can't quite capture, that cow parsley is also Queen Anne's lace, that grief does dissipate, that language will not create you. It might not be so easy to remember the before, the multitude, the noise, to look at the negative space, to see the flowers made of cut and curled beer cans and think handwoven flax. The plastic pebbles on the beach are just that. Animals don't discriminate, not like we think they should. The upturned shopping cart painted into the landscape is the landscape. The bowerbird builds and dances. The sheen of petroleum is more luminous than abalone. You see how easily we slip romantic? My dear child, how could I keep you from this? Thank you. And thank you, Crystal. Uh, now here's a poem, prose poem in four pieces from uh, Richard Loringer, uh, genius in Oakland, California. The Cinnamon of the Veins. Why can't we speak of falling leaves? You can have your economics and your ironies, but can you live without the fall? What art belies the oak? How many acorns need to drop on your head before the crumbling leaves become your heart? You may speak of preciousness, of the sure done and overdone, of parsing the new for a vamping vi, but this is the eternal fugue, my friend, an eddy, a year, and you can no more shun the river than you cannot fear. Rather, to fret the flow and disavow the peril of the plunge is to live in a small plastic box. Some do prosper there, coddling feet and ramifying brow, but even that cube will be covered by crumbling leaves next fall or the next to fortify the feral fugue again. And clouds roll in, and I am glad for autumn rain smells like the start of everything. And darksome days are time for all the dust to settle, sweet, sweet the air and safe to open chest to amity. When trees drink clouds and dry ground soaks and we can sense a fulgence down the road, how can we not enjoy the dropping of all things and the sleek sweep of pungent breeze? I'd like to lie down in the street and shine. Just because the days are good doesn't mean we should forget the flat smack in the face and brow clubbed with the butt of the palm. These are the ways of men who are not yet men and they run freely on the land. Who else are not yet human? All of us. Don't kid yourself. There's rarely been a more vain and lethal misconception. Rather sit in the grass, lie in the leaves, and say, what makes me the same as dirt? Then put some in your mouth to make sure. And so we drift, and minerals abound. What have we found amidst the molten spray? A gate, perhaps? A key? Or just another day? A certain urge to float is in the bones, a sleek return to nitrogen and glee. What spree we have is tempered by the nerves, seared and shackled by the burning sky. We live for nectar and a furtive eye that touches us beyond the skin. And where we drift determines how the next song will begin, steeped again in minerals and urge. We love to surge. 
That's Richard Loringer. And now we'll get back to Portland and Catherine Salzman. Catherine Salzman is a poet and massage therapist living in Portland. She has two poetry chapbooks published by Persian Poetry Prose, Hermopoesis, and Prayer Ceremony. And she has poems scattered in print and online journals in the Cosmic Forces. Uh, here's Catherine. Hello. I'm going to read three poems. The first one's called Superpowers for Beginners. One, you were born with an infinite number of mistakes. Use them. Dress them up as you drop them off. Buff those gems, every shiny, hoop, boy, oh shit, criminy, and thanks a lot. As you lob them, your infinite mistakes out over the boom logs, one after another, little bundled plots of pure gaff, out to join and enjoin the river, opening for the cargo barge and the kayak alike rejoining easily like water, a magnetic strip untroubled, every slip-up carried back to the dock, where once again you can pitch it fluently yours and headlong into forever. Two, you can enjoy singing like a howling cat. My black blanket pricks up against the bottom branches. Draped in aromatic bristles, I follow night air and the minute gestures of the pole star, that pin stuck in the everlasting. My GPS is hirsute, prickly, sensitive to the wayward, the hidden, the lost. I track their mewling. I press into the needle dark under the lowest branches, inhale, and listen with my whole skin for their footsteps in the duff and their instant infinite complaint. Three, you can slow down time. Be a red-winged Usha queen, banging a blade of daffodils on an hourglass, tiptoe and slow-mo past those spicy yellow aerosols. No black holes here. Soft shoe the cesura strung over your to-do list, and as you do, sing, tick-tock, make it stop. It was never a line anyway. I went out to Playa for a writer's retreat and one of my writer friends gave me a metal box that was stuffed full of these random treasures. So when you can't think of anything to write about, you write about what's right in front of you. <laughs> so this is a poem. It's basically a list poem. Ten Ways Light Is Made one, 60 watt transparent light bulb. Small cathedral to a high wire act, electric acrobatics devoted to a tiny elegant crisis of contact. God's circus tent of vaulted glass, where angels with wings ablaze somersault into each other's arms. On and off we are beguiled. Two, its little sister, the mini-mag flashlight, that silver six-inch pistol, its knobbed and cross-hatched handle marking every scrape and trail from here to the farthest shore. Hooked to your belt or hung around your neck like wall art, it is also almost pocket-sized. Three, 
50 ml Glenfiddich single malt whiskey. Fire, age 12 years, to temper and defrost light's icy arrows as they enter your eyes, a one-upmanship of stings that you will always win. 4A, beeswax candle. Unlit, its scent still holds the world up, a blonde chocolate nutrient made from the pollen boots of certain bees, like leather masters softening a hide with spit, chandlers of clover and blackberry, honeysuckle transmogrified, hexagonal heaven, and a bit of cord make a city set on a hill. 4B, Garland of Marigolds. Late November's la last blooming earth oils explode out of the orange and yellow heads, knock back trouble with a one-two extrasensory propulsion spliced directly into your glial membrane. All deities prefer the invisible, suddenly and inexcusably seen. Five, Viennese malt ball wrapped in gold foil. Sotto voce. Little sugar sunrise, wake up, wake up. Candy in all its forms makes the world go round. Six, Buddha with a backpack. Bruise-colored fat man frozen in perpetual hilarity. Ruddy, thumb-sized hematoma, loosely draped, mostly exposed, old, bald, perv, made in China where they tick these figures out a dime a dozen to remind lost Westerners how to greet impermanence. And yet, I am laughing. I am reminded. Seven, Bibelne. Dated 1893 mildewed rose-gilt end leaves in Swedish, the language of my ancestors I cannot read, except the inset dedication to Linda Angela Theresia Boquist, meine Frau, the little woman, my wife, from E.A. Boquist, Wheaton, Minnesota. Lutherans are all over my epigenetics. I accept it as a talisman, a rabbit's foot, but not as soft. Eight, nine, ten, three magic stones, appetite, orange calcite, and green adventurine, random crystalline tirade, each with special powers, extruded prayers, or little songs to kick along the trail. Appetite, the trickster stone, the Zen master with a switch and a book of cones for meditation, concentration, insight, bound to light-bearing phosphorus, the firestone, boss element of matches, fireworks, and steel. Melting point, 44.1 degrees C. Orange calcite, ginger limestone, common as limestone, just a pebble in Greek, to rotate your psychic tires and scare off pandemonium. Green adventurine, the B-side of a 60s 45 that's better than the hit. A psychedelic blacklight poster strung out on dayglow pink zeroes in on the moment chance and purpose meet. Shimmy now and see the world with new eyes. I've often thought that uh, listening to poetry is a lot like eating cheesecake. Like, really, you're smart to just have a very slim piece 
at a time. Otherwise you're going to start to ache all over and not be able to enjoy it. That said, I'm going to um, just read one more poem, but I did want to say a little introduction about it first. Um, during the lockdown, I couldn't write a thing, so I read a lot. And I became obsessed with quite a number of books, like Patricia Lockwood's Balloon Pop Outlaw Black. Y'all should read that. But in particular, Charles Simic's, um The World Doesn't End, and a book by Laura Glenham called Maximum Gaga. And that book is a, has a story that builds on several invented characters, and it's rooted in, in Greek mythology, but totally modern and hilarious, and part of a genre of kind of raw, cheeky, very imaginative, feminist, femme-erotic literature called Girlesque. You can Google that. <laughs> And I can't recommend this book highly enough. I loved it so much I bought and gave away several copies in that year. <clears throat> and then in the second year of the pandemic, my adult daughter told me about um, some abuse she'd experienced as a young girl that I had never known about. And so the poem I'm going to read, it doesn't talk about the story my daughter told me, but my fury and grief kind of erupted into this poem and it kind of erupted through the things that I had been reading, the sort of character making of Maximum Gaga and the beautiful little prose poems of Simic that are a little bit of surreal and along with hundreds of random images and phrases that I've been carrying around for a very long time and it all just kind of exploded out of me. Um, I don't really think this poem is finished, but this is where it's at right now. Animal Girl. Animal Girl rocks herself in a schism all night, drinks blood iron from a hangnail while she doom scrolls along the underside of a dusky humdrum retrograde. Animal Girl rains starlit scat and fungal vinegars down upon her enemies sleeps in a crook of moss like a floppy hairpiece. Listen, animal girl can smell you from here and she doesn't like it. No, no, no she doesn't. Animal girl forages for spilled milk among the tears. Her black snout buckles and snarfs, kicking up seven sour dust devils of mildewy heartbreak. Pads of newsprint will never reduce the stink, nor rosemary nor any other part belonging to a man. Even the sweet Annie pills up in the wool and all the bane stored in that stairlight box. She's not stuck. You're stuck. She's just hungry, like the prophet pitching double whammies from the bottom of the well. Animal girl skips out on animal school. Don't try to tell her what to do. Her individualism is too squat for that. Biogenic gases invade her sense text. She's had it, absolutely. Animal girl doubles up around her volatility. The moss adsorbs her. She rests, and you cannot reach her. Animal girl pulls her zipper out by the roots. It goes click, click, click as it lifts and separates. The stitches unlock into a leer, are emergent and promising. Open wide, says Animal Girl, knocking clods of industrial grade lead against her disdain. 
The ground is a smorgasbord of radioactive yum. Open wide, little ticket. Eat up. Little ticket is parboiled by lucid dreaming. Little ticket has wrinkled sketchwork way down low. It's their fossil song, the ribbed backing backing up against a thundercloud of endless perturbation inside a complex plane where Z equals zero. Not one to diverge to infinity, Little Ticket's motto is, I invoke myself. Animal Girl put her lizard brain in the outbox, a twitchy heap off-gassing paint-by-numbers dread. She languishes on her puncta like a cold seed. Little Ticket rarely frets and knows all arrows represent bidirectional connections, a lyric repetition lobbing its bloody recursions sideways, exiting everywhere, ending never, crooning as iridescent folds puddle up around their knobs. Animal Girl has retractable spikes like Weapon X or your mother. Ten stabby cross-hatched hurricanes extrude into the epigenetic afterflow, and oh, but she is adamantine in her labor and desire. Remember this one prayer, shameless mothers make joyful daughters. Good luck, animal girl growls, tossing her lightning into the wheel spokes of her lover boy's lemon-lined Bugatti, stung with day-glow flowered decals meant to charm the evil eye. Discs of zinc and copper stacked between brine-soaked squares. My spine interjects, says Little Ticket, out loud, and thinks, I am voltaic, wrapping their chest in diaminogenous current, exploding directly out of the blue. Little Ticket is tectonic, like a pocket full of dimes, fletched in hot pink. They do the math by heartbeat. They take the avenue by storms, a glyph of honorifics, spellbound to the flip side of every silver moonlit bundle and its celestial burn. Thanks, Catherine. Now I'm going to fill in with a poem from one time Oregonian, Philip Whalen, Reed graduate, all that, former beat angel. How to be successful and happy without anybody else finding out about it. I was falling asleep in my chair. Now I lie on the floor, ruminating ideas of life's brevity, the feeble intensity of enormous ambition. Hasselton Brazler said he'd be over. He had to pick up his car and take a haircut. You understand what I'm talking about, including the power tools? There's no excuse for an imitation of Billie Holiday. Think of grass, a half acre of weeds, lawn, eucalyptus trees, pink lilies on leafless thick red stems all in a row, appearing spontaneously, not from a regular bed or trench of specially cultivated earth. You remember what I'm talking about. You've been there, but maybe not in lily season. A freezing cold morning, throat and sinuses burning. Hazelton Brasler was uncertain. Thursday or Saturday, he didn't want tea or whiskey. He had forgotten why he wanted to see me. My sleep wrecked with difficult dreams, managing crowds of friends, trying to organize them, interrupted, wakened by seeing with who again? Persuade, <coughs> explain, hopeless. 
The lilies shove right up out of the grass where one expects flat ground. These big vegetable telephone rockets, they're a regular line, fat rutabaga bulbs, clearing the surface of the ground, swelling and subdividing. Probably listening to Hasselton Brassler again, trying to come up with helpful suggestions for coping with his difficulties. With so little rain, the lilies will be late this year. Why don't I go home to Oregon? Seventeen or eighty feet of naked ladies, all in a row, amaryllis. Quote, brought the apples you wanted, more tomorrow, Theocritus says. Philip Whalen writes. Prologue The old man rocked on worn leather boot heels, dark eyes narrowed to slits in the fierce light dazzling the calm surface of the shallow pool. Time swam in circles. The sun crept low behind him, casting his shadow across the water, and still he waited. Jay Joseph stood well back from the water's edge. Through the years, he had watched his grandfather's body shrink, his hair turn white, his skin crease. Gone was the proud man who once towered in the flickering light of spring campfires. Weaving magic in his beaded moccasins and leggings, his breechcloth, the old bone breastplate handed down from Ken Kinawa, last salmon chief of the Shweyup. Gone was the man who gave thanks to the creator for Schwanetku's everlasting bounty, shaking the air with the voices of the Chipchaktikul, the animal people, splashing bright pictures across the night sky. Gone were his tanned elkskin vests and trousers, traded for plaid shirts and blue jeans. The old moccasins traded for cowboy boots. His sweatband traded for a baseball cap. The black rimrock tossed jagged shadows down the rubble-strewn slope. The shadows of coyote's jaws closing around the stream. The stream a jackrabbit's throat. His grandfather's spirit the delicate thread giving life to this place. This was the man who taught him harmony with the land and peace with all creatures. This was the man who taught him to be a man. The sun burned a hole in the rimrock and slipped inside. The stream turned gray, its light gone out. The old man faced the rimrock, his eyes like the surface of the pool, filled with pale reflections of the sky. That's it, then. Maybe, maybe tomorrow, Jay said, his voice as ragged as the trailing edge of a storm. My father knew this was coming, just as his father knew. Jay pleaded with his hands, choking back tears. The salmon are gone. The river is dead. No, grandfather! The old man sailed his cap into the sagebrush, pulled a red and black bandana from his back pocket, folded it to a sweatband, and tied it around his head. He clasped Jay's hand hard, the way Jay's father had, thirty years before before he walked away forever. Goodbye, grandson. Jay's arms hung limp as he watched his grandfather fade into the deepening shadows. When at last the silhouette rose and fell at the crest, he followed, reaching the rim in time to see the old man step inside his shack and swing the door shut. He ran hard, the picture fixed in his mind, Grandfather stripping off the white man's clothes, slipping into his leggings, his beaded moccasins, his quillwork breechcloth, stretching out on his bed, closing his eyes, folding his hands over Kinkanawa's bone breastplate. The door swung open on a gust. The old man held up a hand. The hand curled and withered like a leaf. 
Grandfather! Chapter 1 Jay stripped and faced the blood-red horizon. The spark biting the lip of the distant rimrock flickered and died. He swung to the weathered shack, struck a match, and touched fire to the dry sagebrush piled against the warped clabbards. Flames sprang up and swallowed the shack. He stared hard at the fire's angry eyes and down its molten throat. Its teeth tore his flesh. Its tongue pierced his brain. Its breath charred his soul. Slowly, deliberately, he traced thick stripes around his cheeks and forehead and down his neck, red, white, yellow, black, around his arms, across his chest and stomach, down his thighs and calves. His eyes blazed, his chest heaved. As he drew himself up, a howl rumbled from deep inside and broke from his throat like a flash flood. The sound hung in, hush, in the hushed air until rage gave way to grief and the echoes faded. A coyote yipped off across the plain. Pieces of the shack fell away, trailing white smoke. He stepped down hard in the heavy dust, arching his back, rolling his shoulders, moving to the beat of drums he could feel in his head, the chant of singers he could hear, around and around the shack, his cries knifing the sky like the screams of eagles, his footfalls pounding the ground like the hoofbeats of wild horses. And as he danced, he darted the dark tunnels of his life. He was five. The skeleton of his house glowed red-orange against the yellow flames. He lay spread-eagled in the dust, gasping, struggling to rise. His mother's face, framed by the window she broke with his body when she tossed him through, cried out, but no sound escaped. Her eyes wild, screaming, fading, appearing again, the broken window panes dripping glass, the flames crackling and spitting. Where were his sisters, his baby brother? Where was his father? That's the first of a whole series here of flashbacks that establish, well, not only his rage at the white man's world, but his desire to return to his roots. He's, he's a successful author in the uh, real world, in the white man's world, uh, but he's going to give it all up and go back to living as his forefathers lived. So uh, I won't go through all of those, uh, except I want to read one that establishes his arch enemy. And <clears throat> this is, goes back to high school, and this is a bully who... Uh, made numerous attempts to uh, beat the pulp out of, out of Jay and uh, never succeeded. And uh, a lifelong uh, animosity. Uh, he, he appears later in, on, in the book trying to assassinate Jay. Uh, and Pete is Jay's uh, best friend. So Pete brushed back his hair and plopped his hat down. Dream fight. That's what these fuckheads are calling it. The tackle and the tight end. The cowboy and the Indian. Jay funneled a stream of dust from a cupped hand. He had picked his spot, the pitcher's mound, because Jack played catcher. No follow yours, old buddy. Pete glanced at the two-story stone schoolhouse, its tall windows blazing, then through the weave of his hat brim at the setting sun. If I'd have just kept my goddamn mouth shut... 
If you hadn't spoken up, Pete, I would have had all ten of the bastards on my back. That was funny, old Jack saying he was going to find out the color of my blood, and you coming on like John Wayne. Reckon it's red like mine, you said. Reckon it ain't yellow like some dumb asshole I know, him always hiding out in a crowd. <laughs> Pete grinned. Sounds like he's bringing the whole fucking school with him. Jack trudged around the corner of the bus barn, sidekicks glued to his boot heels. Behind them, bunched like cattle in a chute, came the seniors and juniors, the sophomores and freshmen, the custodians, the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers, even a few Main Street merchants. Jay danced from foot to foot. He knew the drill from the ring at Chamawa. Hard lessons from a tough coach. Keep your guard up, tuck your elbows, bend your knees, don't let him work in close. Jack swaggered up and whipped off his plaid shirt, exposing skin the pasty white of a dead fish uh, above the elbows and below the neck. Tossing his shirt, he flexed his pecs to a chorus of shrill squeals from a cluster of sophomore girls. His fist, sudden and swift, caught Jay on the chin and snapped his head back. The crowd gasped. Jay bounced out of range. Shake it off. Keep your distance. Jack plowed ahead, slapping the dust with his boot heels, bobbing, pumping his, thought, his fist like a piston. The crowd swam in and out, chanting, blood, blood. Keep him moving. Wear him down. Use your reach. He circled, ducking swarms of wild swings, tapping Jack's nose, popping his jaw, waiting for an opening, the payoff for all those body blows, those bloody noses and puff-shut eyes, those screams of rage inside as he fought for his life against bigger, stronger, meaner opponents in the Chamawa ring. Jack's face puckered. Sweat poured from his forehead and collected in his eyes, dripped from his chin. His boot soles dug furrows in the dust, his few wild swings flew wide. He dropped his hands and flexed his fingers. Jay hurled a hard right. Jack staggered back, clutching his gut, eyes glazed, jaws slack. A murmur swept through the crowd. Right cross, left uppercut. Jack sank to his knees, stumbled to his feet, raised his arms to shield his face. Pound the midsection. Jack wrapped his arms around his gut. Unload! The flurry of blows closed Jack's eyes, split his lip, dropped into the pitcher's mound like a 200-pound sack of pig chow. His sidekicks dragged him off. The muffled crowd stole into the gathering dusk. Mud swallows popped from the eaves of the bus barn and swooped low, skimming the slump-shouldered stubble fields tumbling to the west. Thunderclouds, their finely etched contours glowing like the tips of eagle feathers, puffed above the black rimrock beyond. The air hung still. How are you doing, Jay? No better, no worse. Maybe old Jack will lay off now. You believe that, Pete? Fuck no, you went and got a goddamn enemy for life. He's part of what keeps me sane, Pete. As long as I have him to hit, and you for a friend, and Rosie to love, and grandfather to guide me, I won't wind up killing anybody. So that gives you an idea of uh, why Jack Hoskins has it in for Jay. And he will return later in the book to uh, try to bump off his arch enemy. But I want to go into what the book itself is all about. 
this is based, the changer is based on a Salish uh, prophecy of the change. And there has already been a change, and uh, it started with a flood and it wiped out all the bad people and, and uh, left a few to uh, carry on afterwards. And the, there is a prophecy that there will be a second change. And so I make it happen. <laughs> and uh, Jay, you, you could say Jay is the changer uh, and because he propels the action. What he does is heads off into the woods and finds himself confronted by uh, uh, eco-warriors whose camp he is about to stumble into, and uh, he winds up uh, with a, a wound in his leg. Uh, he, he's shot um, because he drew on them, and uh, they nurse him back, and he becomes one of them. And uh, as it turns out later, uh, he becomes their leader. And they decide to take over Grand Coulee Dam. And it sounds far-fetched, but uh, I think the way it plays out, uh, it's all very, very, very lo logical and reasonable. And uh, I weave native myths and uh, prophecies into the book. Each one has a, uh, is, drives the action. Uh, there's one in particular where the um, uh, grandfather is telling the young Jay uh, the uh, story of the Walla Walla brothers and how the Chinook brothers came up the Columbia to battle them. And the, and the Walla Walla brothers blew cold wind down uh, the river, and the Walla Walla brothers tried to blow warm wind up. Uh, and so in this battle, um, which I think actually is a, a, a native recollection of the Ice Age, and uh, if, if <laughs> it gives me, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here. Let me get back to the book. <laughs> um, so anyway, there is a, a, a Chinook wind that melts the heaviest snowpack in history, and, and that occurs because of climate change and the, the extremes of weather. So uh, that, in turn, propels an earthquake. Now, leading up to this, there's a, a parallel storyline where a BPA hydrologist has predicted earthquakes there. And there was an earthquake at Grand Coulee in 1872 that, that topped nine on the, at the time, the, the, um, the old scale. Um, but anyway, the two stories then converge at the dam, and the, uh, they ask for government negotiators. Uh, the, uh, the whole idea is this to get protections for the salmon, uh, if it, even if it means taking down dams. Uh, <laughs> that's another, another story. Anyway, uh, it all comes together in uh, grand fashion, and uh, I will <laughs> uh, you know, read a little bit of, a, of one of the, uh, the stories that Grandfather tells Jay because uh, it actually relates uh, to the whole, the whole subject of the change. 
and it's it's a creation myth that uh, uh, that I won't read about. But uh, so he's talking to Jay about the creation of the world and and uh, the uh, and then what happened when. Um, Okay, well, here, let me just pick up here. Grandfather settled back and straight and, straight and arranged his blanket. Prophets among the new people told of a change yet to come, a new language shared by all things. When we can understand animals, the change will be halfway. When we can talk to the forest, the change will be complete. Will the next change start with a flood, Grandfather? We'll have to wait and see. When will it come? My grandfather said I would see a vision before I die. I don't want you to die, grandfather. Don't worry, I'm not ready yet. Will I live through the change? If your spirit power is strong, when will I find my spirit power? One day soon you'll go looking for it. Will the changer come to me? Anything is possible, grandson. Only time will tell. And the, the second change is brought about by... Well, look around you, read the news. <laughs> are we ready for a change or are we? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, uh, I don't know. I... All right, well, thanks, David. Uh, man, there's some time here, so I'm going to throw in a couple new poems of my own. Why not? Different. Signal to noise. I'm mistaking Gaia's gravitic pulse for a bass line. Every breath a drum beat, every collision symbolic. I keep straining for melody but only get me. Even if everyone wasn't walking around with earbuds, who would hear me? Like the stars who think they're whispering too far away for us to have a hint of their language. The night sky is social media suppressing most planetary voices. As if my skull was acres of dried and compressed clouds, my brain sun long ago dwarfed by self-protection, asteroids of muscles that once were or could have become planets. Is blood dark matter? Are my nerves the in intentions of this quote-unquote Big Bang that barely had time to breathe life into mud before momentum drove it onward? Back here, the napkin of my pencil sketch circuitry has gone from the ringer and the clothesline to microwave oven and nuclear poster. Nuclear toaster. Nothing solid comes in cans anymore, and the list of ingredients is a graduate-level chemistry text. It's an eat-or-be-eaten world. Every non-decision, a new flavor in an old disguise, sometimes archetypal and resonant, sometimes too sleek for more than a syllable, fuel-injected interjections, commands disguised as choices, only the clocks can change themselves, refusing to see the sky. Empty enough a mise en place for creating a universe. Smoke in the shadows, air cut open, a 24-hour one-handed watch. A big difference between windows and mirrors is mirrors are harder to open. I won't be caught if I don't appear, not running in place, but running in now. 
Nothing is perfect or instant. Time, gravity, the space between planets. Assuming Earth isn't alone on some ancient galaxy-sized data screen, that everything came from nothing shows me how the two connect mutually interflowing. So much depends where on the ocean I put my straw, what's in the air when I take my first breath and two days and uncountable miles. Fermentation, combustion, a burst of energy from nowhere, neither on purpose or against it, neither ready or surprised. Aim for what is neither abundant or rare, a type O experience. Not whether it's edible, but how to make it so. Heat is a state of mind. Physics won't negotiate, but can be deceived. And let's go back from me to to Philip Whelan again. High tension on low-pressure, non-accomplishment blues. Dog's laughing mouth and happy eye. No color, fur, brown eyes, white teeth, red tongue, dripping. Its lips are black, precisely notched. Optical instruments handle with care. Optical instruments no longer there. Nothing to be done with that picture either. Precise image of wood grains and bare and gawa floor. I could feel and smell it. And behind me the garden, the tree peonies, a single rock for a step and dirt with moss and pebbles. Hot sun illuminates plaster wall, precisely blocked. Every morning I am fat. Every morning I am old, every morning bought and sold. What may have been thought of once as a snappy summer hat, supposedly hand-woven, dirty, mole-colored plastic fiber on top of hair, partly dyed dark red above skin, almost the right complexion for that kind of hair, perfectly white, very short bristles, mark out a new square mustache, irresistible charm, has got to be good for something. And what is poetry good for? What is art? I mean, we wanted to uh, spark out a bit the magical, the imagined. Um, that's what we all face when we want to spurt out. We want to be known for something. Again, uh, poetry. Here it is, coming into winter. What's going on? There's no central organization, no central voice. We get this wonderful show thanks to Kebu. And uh, we do have activists in the community. Leanne Grable, I already mentioned, she reads around a lot. You got to stick your nose there and find out what's going on. I'm a big uh, booster of the, the Rose City Book Pub there on Fremont. Check that out. Check out their website. Kibu has. My thanks to tonight's three readers Catherine, David, and Crystal. Thanks to Patrick Bocard for helping to keep the show going. Thanks to Kebu for providing the airwaves. And thanks to all of you listening out there. Have a good night. This is Dan Raphael.
you're listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM in the Portland area and all over the world at kboo.fm. This is KBOO Portland, community radio for the Pacific Northwest. Right now, it's the bedtime radio show for grown-ups, Gremlin Time. And good evening and welcome to Gremlin Time. This is Fortunato. Let's see, we're going to present three pieces from a book by local writer J.D. Chandler, who passed away about a year ago. This is called Murder and Mayhem in Portland, Oregon. And J.D. got into a lot of really interesting Portland history. And so we're going to get into the dark side of the Rose City with our first piece, Mayhem on Morrison Street, 1878. The violence of the Old West that is pervasive 